You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. They don't really care if that block thrives. They don't really care if they're adding value to the rest of the neighborhood because they're never going to walk down that street. They're never going to shop in that neighborhood. I'm Jeff Schulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast gives you rare insight into the minds of real estate developers as they reshape Seattle's streets and skyline. This third season of Seattle Growth Podcast brings you diverse perspectives on the physical transformation underway as the city is experiencing an economic and population boom. In the last episode, you heard from a local business owner who lost his restaurant when the building it was in was redeveloped. I didn't have place to you know, take all those equipments and everything, so I had to let everything go. I just had no strength left. Uh, my back was totally broken as far as the finances were concerned. You heard from a longtime Seattle resident who has seen the buildings and businesses change around her. And so that's the hurting factor, that a person could be gentrified in a community as such and then feel that black churches can go away also because of the financial instability And then after they go away, where is the framework when the church has always been the backbone of the black community? You also heard from a software engineer who created SeattleInProgress.com to illustrate where development is happening in the city. It's basically just a map of development projects. So any new building in Seattle, either one that's going through construction right now or one that's going through the permitting process and is being planned. And you'll get pins for all the proposed or current uh, buildings. And if you click on one, you see a 3D rendering from the architects. In today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, meet two of the real estate developers reshaping our city. As you look ahead to where you live or might live, these interviews give you insight into the kinds of neighborhoods and properties that attract real estate development. You will get an inside look into their development process and how you can influence it. You'll hear from Liz Dunn of Dunn & Hobbs, which specializes in the adaptive reuse of existing buildings, as well as the construction of new urban infill projects. To make a place that people want to spend time in, the neighborhood has to have really good bones. So I guess that means a couple things for me. You will hear from Joe Ferguson of Lake Union Partners, which specializes in residential mixed use and commercial projects. What I've seen just even in the past two years is a much more organized process of community input and feedback. These two interviews give you examples of the variety of developers reshaping the physical landscape of our city. Many people have noticed the changes to the buildings around them, but few have gotten to meet the individuals who make these changes. To get to know one of these individuals, join me as I sit down with Liz Dunn. I'm here in Cloud Studios, a podcast recording studio in Capitol Hill, That also is a place for emerging artists to engage in their band practice. And I'm here with Liz Dunn, a principal at Dunn & Hobbs. Liz, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Seattle is undergoing a a transformation, and and you are one of the people remaking some of the physical structures in the city. Uh, Why don't you tell me just a little bit about yourself? Wow. Well, I moved to Seattle almost 30 years ago. It makes me feel really old. But um, I was a college intern, and I was at that point in time, a tech person. So I came out here to work for a tech company doing um, an internship. And it was interesting because um, I grew up in Canada outside of Toronto, and I had lived in a couple other cities as as well. Um, Toronto 
London and and Paris. And well, I loved Seattle, and I don't want to sound the least bit condescending. It was not very urban. I was a little surprised. In fact, it was charming and cozy and uh, rainy <laughs> and and just not very active downtown. Um, I think it's still true today that Seattle is a city of neighborhoods, and that's one of its strengths, and we can talk about that a little more. And so, you know, in, in a way, our downtown isn't as kind of critical to the whole urbanization movement as as it has been perhaps to other cities. And having said that, our downtown has also come a long, long way in 30 years. It, it's pretty much transformed um, in the ways you would expect. But I think the real story is the story of the neighborhoods. And tell me a little bit about Dun & Hobbs. After about 10 years in tech, which I enjoyed but was never actually my life's goal, frankly. It was always a detour until I could kind of um, have enough financial stability to choose, I went back to what I would have chosen, which was architecture and urban planning. And I had always loved buildings and cities and design, kind of from the really micro level all the way up to the what should a city block look like and how should cities be organized and and function. You've volunteered to help demystify the process uh, of development, <laughs> and I recognize that the process that you go through is maybe very different from from other developers, but even just hearing your words and, and, and your process will be very helpful. How do you identify what properties to purchase? Well, I do think it's all about the neighborhood. I think it's about the block, you know, that it's, that a property sits on and then, and then the blocks surrounding it. Um, and so that plays a large part. You know, I, I've not done that many projects in almost 20 years on the real estate side. Um, I've done some projects that have, I think, made a really nice impression in the city. And, and I'm really thankful for that. But um, there's really just a handful of them. And so far, they're all on Capitol Hill. I guess that reflects kind of a belief of mine that... If you're investing in a neighborhood, you're not just trying to build a building because you need you've got like money you need to deploy out of some big real estate fund, but you're actually kind of interested in doing it because you're interested in changing the neighborhood. Then a cluster strategy kind of makes more sense um, because if you do one great little project that really catalyzes a bunch of development around it, why would you not want to participate in kind of the benefits that you've created? Um, by doing a couple more projects in the same neighborhood. Now, having said that, I think for me, there's probably not a lot more opportunity left on Capitol Hill now, just because the, the neighborhood and the city are where they are. And so um, if I were to do more projects in future, we'll probably be in a different neighborhood. And so how might you go about choosing a new neighborhood? I really feel like to make a place that people want to spend time in, the neighborhood has to have really good bones. So I guess that means a couple things for me. It has to have at least some uh, older buildings just to kind of anchor it, give it some sense of history and 
Um, like stuff has been happening here for a long time. Uh, they don't have to be pretty buildings. I think, you know, any old building, you know, should be integrated into a neighborhood as it develops moving forward just because, like, again, it helps anchor it and give it some character. And then I, I look for good streets, you know, streets that have great trees and wide sidewalks. And I love on-street parking, even though, you know, I'm as big an advocate as anyone for getting out of our cars, but it just creates another layer between the traffic and the pedestrian. Uh, so, you know, when I say good bones, yeah, collection of older buildings that kind of give it a, a spine and then just a nicely proportioned street with some big old trees on it, if possible. And so you find the neighborhood, you find even the street, and then how do you identify a property that's ready for a transformation that, that you're going to bring to it? Well, you don't always get to just choose, right? I mean, it is somewhat a, a function of what becomes available and falls into your lap. You know, I wish I could just go around and point at properties and say, hey, I'd love to take that one on. Um, I'm a big fan of taking uh, the skinny little surface parking lots in between older buildings and doing new construction infill in a small scale way because I kind of love the collection of old and new buildings that you can create as long as you do it in a granular enough way. In other words, instead of like just tearing the whole block down and putting one massive, fairly boring building, I love the mix. So I love inserting small new buildings in between what's there. And then so you've identified a property that that could be transformed. What comes next? Wow. Well, you know, the development process, as any developer will tell you, is complicated. What comes next is is a lot of interpretation of the land use code, figuring out what could go on the property, and cross-pollinating that with the creative process of what you would really love to do with the property, which is driven by not just architectural ambitions, but also what tenants you'd like to see in the building. And so that's often a 12 to 18 to 24 month process from inception to working with the city and usually a community design review board to um, come to a consensus about what wants to be on the site and what's allowed to be on the site um, before you start construction. It takes a long time to do a development project, even small ones. They don't actually happen any quicker than big ones because you have to go through all the same steps. Who decides what businesses will ultimately be on the property? Well, I mean, I decide, and that's my purview as as the developer. It's one of the things that I love about my job. It's one of the reasons I do what I do. It really is fundamentally about creating interesting space for tenants who are doing creative, entrepreneurial, interesting things. What is the level of community involvement in your decisions through the process? Well, in Seattle, communities actually have um, an unusual degree of involvement compared to some other cities. And there's a lot of debate about whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. I, I am kind of in the minority who does not object to the whole design review process. Um, it, I think, exposes the community's desires. They're not always articulated as clearly as you would want them to be. And there's not always consensus, which I know drives some developers crazy. You know, you'll get 
20 people from the community show up and they won't all say the same thing. If you're smart about it and you listen, there's usually um, the, the, the seeds of some good ideas that, that can help steer the project or tweak the project at least in a different direction. So personally, I've been through probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 design review meetings um, for my own projects. I don't mind the process, but I definitely take control of that process. In other words, I'm not one of those developers that hides behind their architect or that hires an architect with the purpose of, quote, managing the public. I don't think the public needs to be managed. And I think when they can feel they are being managed, they understandably become resentful and the process then doesn't go well for the developer. What do you mean by it doesn't go well? What are some of the consequences of that? It kind of goes hand in hand with the developers who will hire an architect to kind of manage that public process have a project that's kind of big and ugly enough that the project, the process, they feel actually needs some managing. And so and so then it's kind of a double whammy because the public is being shown something that's pretty big and ugly and not actually going to be additive to their community in the ways that they would want. And at the same time, they're being managed, you know, in this process. They're kind of being talked down to in this really patronizing way. And so I've literally seen that backfire and and result in additional meetings or more dramatic changes to the project than the developer would have wanted. Um, and usually I think those changes are for the good. Every Every developer has their design review horror story, but I would argue that that's usually because they didn't come in with a project that was creatively contributing to its to its block and its neighborhood. Where does the money come from to buy the properties and to develop the properties? Well, that's a really interesting question, and that's where my answer is going to be different than when you talk to larger-scale developers who are doing these big quarter-half full-block projects. Projects are financed from two different sources of money. I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but assume every project has what we call equity and debt in it. And it's just like when you go to buy a house, there's the down payment and then there's the mortgage. It's the same thing with commercial property. But the equity, which you could think of as the down payment, then the, the part of it that's not a loan, is usually a large enough sum of money that the developer wants to have investors in the project. Um, in fact, that's almost always true unless it's a super tiny development. Um, the larger projects that you see around town, that money is typically coming from a pension fund or a real estate equity fund, often out of New York or Hong Kong or Atlanta or some other city. Um, and there are some issues related with that, which we can get into. Um, or, um, you know, some other kind of uh, large investment fund that has been pulled together for that purpose. Small-scale development, it tends to be a lot of friends and family of the developer. Um, what I've done over the past couple of years is work with a local real estate um, advisory company with, with some great people that I've just known for a long time. And we've pulled together a platform of investors who 
are beyond friends and family, but they're local people who are interested in what happens in their city, and they have a little bit of money that they'd like to put in real estate, even though they are not necessarily typical or experienced real estate investors. And we've we've created this little platform for them to put their money into multiple projects, not just my projects, but other kind of best-of-breed, small-scale developers. And I'm really optimistic that that is model that could be replicated, not just in Seattle, but in other cities. How and when do people get their money back? Well, in my projects, I tell them they have to be very, very patient. And in part, that's because the curatorial aspect of what I do, which is getting a bunch of tenants under one roof, like at Melrose Market or at Chop House Row, you know, that bears fruit over a long period of time. And um, it requires a lot of tenant management in the early years. And so, you know, I know enough about that process now that I I'm, I know to tell investors, like, this isn't the kind of project that you're going to flip out of in two or three years. That's just not what I do. You know, the construction of a building or the rehab of a building is just the very first stage of this longer-term process of getting it all tenanted, tweaking the tenant mix, um, improving the the project especially you know you spend the first two or three years just making sure the landscaping and the signage and the lighting are all functioning the way you want them to and helping your tenants figure out how to find their market and doing a lot of promotional stuff and that's very different than the answer you're going to get from other bigger developers um, who are mostly building in order to rent apartments and the ground floor space for them is just kind of a a pain um, and and kind of goes neglected because it's not a big part of their financial picture. And those are the same developers who will often build an apartment building, and as soon as it gets leased up in the first cycle, will flip it then to a longer-term hold investor, which will also be some huge financial institution, typically. So those projects tend to pass from large financial institution to large financial institution. You said you view there's some issues with outside money coming into development. What are those issues that you see? Well, I feel like, you know, at some level they should be pretty obvious. The money is coming from people or institutions who don't live in our community. So they're not really invested in the outcome, especially at street level. You know, apartments are somewhat a commodity. And apartments in Seattle right now are um, renting like hotcakes. And and you can easily decide sitting in some other city on, you know, on a pile of money in a fund that Seattle is a great place to go build a bunch of apartments. And that's that's an easy decision that you don't really have to be there to um, pull the trigger on or even implement. Um, you know, the problem with that for us as Seattleites is that the ground floor of those buildings often is totally neglected or mismanaged. And so... The value add to the neighborhood is zero, sometimes negative, because the value add to the neighborhood is what happens at the ground floor of a building, not what happens in the stories up above. Um, and so, you know, if a financial entity owns a building and they're not local, they've, they've got no vested interest. They don't really care if that block thrives. They don't really care if they're adding value to the rest of the neighborhood because they're never going to walk down that street. They're never going to shop in that neighborhood. Um, so that's the obvious problem. I think the other um, issue uh, for for us 
as sort of Seattleites who think about community building rather than just real estate as a financial transaction is that that money that comes from other places wants to be deployed in very large chunks because there's a lot of it. And if you are sitting on a $100 million fund, you don't want to deploy that a million dollars at a time. You want to deploy that, you know, $50 million at a time um, because otherwise it becomes very labor intensive. And those folks really are just trying to maximize their their profit on those deals. And so that automatically drives larger projects. Or the way to flip that around is that there is a ton of money out there that wants to fund larger projects and not as much money that wants to fund smaller ones. But, you know, again, I'm working on that. Yeah. So tell me, how are you working on that and what kind of progress are you making and what, what hopes do you have for the future? Well, I mean, I'm working on it primarily in the sense that I was describing before, which is, you know, this platform of local investors who are willing to put in smaller amounts of money in multiple little projects um, in different neighborhoods over time. And I do think that um, crowdsource funding for local real estate projects is is going to become a thing. It's a thing we've been talking about for at least five years, but I actually think it's going to play a role. I have a friend, Kevin Cavanaugh in Portland, who's the most crazy creative real estate developer I know. I love him to death, and he just did the first, to my knowledge, in the nation, truly crowdsourced investment offering um, for an office building that he's doing there. Like, amounts as low as $1,000, and you did not have to be what's called an accredited investor to put your money in a real estate project. Anybody could do it. And so you've got a lot of money coming into Seattle, which some would say has some positive uh, effects on the economy and on people's lives. But you're saying there's some challenges with what they, their priorities in terms of the development of our city. Do you have any insight as to what residents of Seattle can do to help make sure that development in their neighborhoods or their communities are something that uh, will benefit them and benefit the people who already are there? Well, I think it's really important to not just be someone who opposes everything because that's actually not helpful or productive in a city that's clearly going to grow no matter what, but to actually engage at at a policy level. Like, understand how land use policy works. If you really care about what kind of buildings you're going to get in your neighborhood and what kind of developers are, are going to want to come there, understand the zoning in your neighborhood. Engage in what's going on right now around, um, you know, the new rules around density bonuses in order to um, promote a higher percentage of affordability in every building. Uh, put your money where your mouth is and invest with the kind of small-scale developers whose projects you like. I think that's the promise of crowdsource funding is that neighbors could literally say, okay, we love what this small-scale developer is proposing and we're each going to put five or $10,000 toward that project. And it's never been possible until now to literally vote with your pocketbook on what you want in your neighborhood. So there have been people who've complained about the architectural beauty of the new developments that are happening around the city. Do you have any insight as to why there are so many buildings that people believe are ugly? Well, I don't disagree with those people, by the way. I I don't know why the design bar in Seattle is so 
flow. I mean, I love this city, and I always want to be careful how I answer this question. It comes up a lot. It is a, a, a constant source of conversation in this city as to why new development is so ugly. And I think we can all love Seattle and still have that conversation. Um, I think there are some really good architects who have devoted themselves to doing above the bar mixed use projects. And I would put like Ed Weinstein on that list and a, and a few others. And um, these are very talented AIA award winning architects who are willing to sit down with a speculative developer and do a beautiful building that works with the numbers. And it is entirely possible to do a beautiful building and make the numbers work. But what happens um, very often in this city, and I've seen it on Capitol Hill, is that this same developer whose money is coming from somewhere else um, doesn't themselves as a client kind of know the difference between beautiful and not beautiful. So that's one problem, right? They're not actually a very sophisticated client. And, and I'm sure I'm going to offend all kinds of people by saying this, but it's just, I think we've seen the evidence of that on the ground. And then the second thing they do is that they will hire an architect who's very good at the process of getting their project um, down on paper and arguably pushed through the public review process. Um, and we'll figure out how to do it as cheaply as possible. And they'll hire that architect instead of the design architect who's sort of willing to go one step further to give them a beautiful building within more or less the same budget. Do you have any concluding thoughts on development in Seattle and the future that you would like to see? You know, I think we have some really, really great people working in city government, both on city council and on the administrative you know, on the staff side of city government, who do want better things for our city and are really torn about how, for example, they encourage small-scale development. Because I know from conversations that they'd like to see more of it happen. Um, and they hear from people every day you know, the citizenry about it. And I think we all have to continue to encourage them to create policies that make that easier and more feasible. And I don't want to get all wonky and go into the weeds about what those policies might be, but I'll give you an example of one that is 15 years old, 10 years old, but did help a lot, which was to get rid of the parking requirement. I mean, if you're going to convert an old auto row building that doesn't have parking to begin with into a great restaurant or retail space, you could never do that if there was a requirement to create parking for it. Like, how would you do that? And so there was a light bulb that went off that by having a parking requirement ride on every property, we were just going to get these neighborhoods of parking garage entries, <laughs> you know, and you walk down the best city blocks in this city, they don't even have any curb cuts. They don't have any parking garage entries. Every, you know, every spot is a storefront. That's what you want. So that's an example of a policy change that happened that was incredibly helpful for 
rehabbing old buildings and doing small-scale infill development. For perspective from a developer with a different focus, join me as I sit down with Joe Ferguson. I am here on Dexter Avenue at Lake Union Partners with Joe Ferguson. Joe, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, So why don't we start by you telling me just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, let's see, moved to Seattle in 2005 with my soon-to-be wife, and uh, we've enjoyed living here, have an eight-year-old daughter, and uh, we are happy to, to be a part of the community and live and work in Seattle. Where did you move here from? Uh, moved here from Denver, Colorado. What made you choose Seattle? You know, uh, visiting family out here, fell in love with the natural beauty. Denver's also obviously stunning uh, with the mountains. But when you add the mountains and the water in Seattle, it was it was compelling. Also in 2005, um, I thought uh, the potential real estate market here in Seattle looked to have more horsepower than uh, Denver at the time. And uh, so for my own career, thought it would be a good move um, and lucky to have met my current business partners and started our company in 2009. Saying all of that, Denver certainly had a run itself and we're actually, uh, as a company, looking to invest in that market now as well. So kind of a full circle for me, which is fun. And what were you seeing about Seattle back in 2005 that made you think it had high potential for development? You know, as a, uh, as a city of neighborhoods, there's an identity to each commercial district. And uh, obviously in the late 90s, when the comprehensive plan was updated with um, urban villages, it only encouraged more of that density, uh, both housing and retail uh, amongst, uh, different commercial nodes throughout the city. So, um, for me, it was a combination of, of experiencing, um, you know, what made each neighborhood in the city unique, um, as well as obviously the scarcity of land available, um, plus, uh, the number of headquartered companies, uh, that are and were, uh, in Seattle at that time were, uh, pretty interesting to me. And um, in looking at South Lake Union, I don't think any of us, maybe Paul Allen knew, but um, I certainly didn't think Amazon was going to build this huge corporate campus adjacent to downtown. But I did see that you had one landowner uh, controlling 60 acres of underutilized property, and, and that landowner obviously being fairly capable um, it, it seemed to me that there was obviously a transformation there, um, but it's, it's happened maybe much quicker than I thought it could. So, And how else has the change in Seattle since you've been here uh, compared relative to your expectations when you first moved here to try to help develop the city and its neighborhoods? You know, I think we're all kind of looking around uh, with big eyes and both impressed and and frankly anxious about the pace of development and construction. Um, as a resident of the city, looking around and, and you know, really um, kind of appreciating, but then also, uh, you know, thinking about the impact of, of the activity on the city. Obviously, construction and, and change um, can feel stressful uh, at times. I think it's also obviously very exciting um, to see Seattle at the national stage. I think um, 
in a variety of ways, the city, both from the, the planning office and the Office of Economic Development, and I assume a lot of the community have wanted Seattle to become a, quote, 24-hour city, whether or not that's actually realistic, unless you're in uh, New York, I don't know. But, um, you know, even an 18-hour city, the concept of consistent activity at the street and, uh, again, amongst these kind of commercial nodes throughout our neighborhoods um, is is pretty interesting for those of us who appreciate what it means to live in a city and, and be a part of that. You're taking a role in the future of Seattle with Lake Union Partners. Can you tell me a little bit about the company? Yeah, so I mentioned we started in 2009. Um, my uh, three business partners and I saw an opportunity uh, obviously at the end of a cycle um, that really was a level playing field. Um, a lot of our peers in the industry had been saddled by legacy issues and uh, workouts with lenders and broken projects, um, and they were trying to put fingers in uh, the holes of the, of the bottom of the boat, if you will, while... Uh, we had a, a fresh perspective and, and started planting seeds uh, for different business plans um, around the city. And then really for us, survival was success um, for the first two years. We've, uh, uh, we're not coming with a big uh, pot of gold to this business. So it was really what we were making um, as consultants, which, which fed the company uh, for the first uh, uh, couple years. And then once the market caught up to us, um, we were able to speculate on our own behalf and uh, sponsor um, a, a few different multifamily apartment projects, um, one of the first being in Wallingford on Stoneway. Obviously, that's another corridor we've seen change dramatically uh, from kind of low-rise flex warehouse to... Uh, mixed-use multifamily and office, uh, which is encouraging. We got uh, a few of these projects going and and started to make a, a name for ourselves, establish a brand that we think holds up our values as partners and as uh, members of the community. We're uh, very focused on the uh, street level of our buildings. We want to make sure we've got an engaged um, retail presence and not just something that is warm bodies, but also uh, hopefully complements um, the neighborhood itself, either a service that's missing or um, uh, folks who are local entrepreneurs wanting to uh, kind of control their own destiny and, and you know be a part of the opportunity in this city. And you said that one of the things that attracted to you to Seattle is the, the different neighborhoods and their own identity. What neighbors, what neighborhoods have you developed as, at Lake Union Partners? So I already mentioned Wallingford, uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, we finished a project in Roosevelt just um, about a year and a half ago called Rooster. Uh, the neighborhood had gone through a big upzone um, previously and essentially pushed density towards uh, I-5. And so we uh, took advantage of that and um, built 200 units of apartment and have a um, compelling ground floor, we think, because we set the building back to provide what is essentially a commercial stoop, if you will, kind of a front porch to the building, allows our uh, retailers to um, occupy that outdoor area uh, with cover um, 
throughout the year. And so we have Portage Bay Cafe serving breakfast and lunch on one side, and then Bowl, uh, which is a, a Vietnamese pho uh, concept. So we're excited to have kind of that morning, noon, and, and now night um, activity on that project. Uh, we have been busy in the Central District. Uh, we have two projects that are built, one at 23rd and Union and the other a block to the west at 24th and Union. And we received our rezone approval for the gas station, which is on the north uh, west corner of, of 23rd and Union. And we'll be building um, multifamily apartment uh, with ground floor retail there as well. And uh, what's been rewarding about uh, doing more than one project there is it's um, really given us a reason to kind of take a step back from just our property and think about, um, again, the different services that we might be able to provide with our with our retail and, uh, you know, what it means to be um, investing in and, and participating in the growth of a, of a major intersection and a, and a dynamic neighborhood. And so if somebody is living in the central district and they're seeing three buildings come in uh, from a company based uh, outside of their neighborhood and they're feeling, they might feel anxious, what can they do to make sure that what you do helps them? You know, I think uh, what I've seen just in the, even in the past two years is a much more organized uh, process of community input and feedback for developers. Um, in the past, uh, again, because I mentioned a lot of different uh, community groups have have existed, there was it was hard for a developer to come in and figure out uh, who do I engage with, who do, who am I talking to. Um, and the Office of Economic Development has really tried hard uh, to bring all of those voices together and, and establish more of a uh, concise, um, uh, you know, program for, for that feedback to occur. Um, and so, you know, I think uh, as a resident of a neighborhood, um, certainly the city is a resource, um, I think, you know, uh, blogs are a tremendous value for all of us trying to figure out, you know, what's the news on a daily basis, whether new projects are being presented or new businesses are opening. Um, uh, you've got a lot of good folks who are, who are running some of the local blogs who can um, help support that. And usually then they're also posting notices for uh, community meetings, and uh, the city obviously has a prescribed uh, program in place for design review uh, to include public input. If a resident is anxious about uh, the development coming into their neighborhood, what impact does their feedback have on the process and the output? First of all, you know, the the quick answer to, um, you know, should I be going out and spending time uh, with the the community meetings and and providing feedback is, uh, you know, do I even have the time? Right? Do people want to sacrifice their personal time and and really engage in that manner? And I think, hopefully, um, you know, as we've seen with recent election and voter turnout, and uh, you know that that engagement is what makes the difference, right? So if we're all willing to kind of set aside that additional time to make the effort, then. Uh, 
you know, let's, let's commit to that and be a part of the process. Um, but you know, to, to someone who hasn't, um, maybe participated in, in meetings like that yet and wondering what value can I add or, or, uh, if, if I'm providing input, is that input well-received and, and how is that used? I think, uh, you know, the city, again, back to these design review board meetings, is trying hard to uh, look at that process and improve that as best they can um, so that when a community does feel strongly about uh, either design guidelines, which are uh, is, is a formal document presented by neighborhoods to developers um, through the planning process, or, uh, you know, just even community priorities, um, I think it's it's about creating, uh, you know, a, a a list of of attributes of any given project that are going to be um, realistic, but then also uh, um, important to any any given neighborhood or or community. And and, and I think if there's a if there's a two sided conversation that's allowed, um, you know, I I have faith that. Uh, Developers at the end of the day are looking to build the project, um, and and some would say, as a uh, cynical person, you know, a developer's path of least resistance and move on to the next one, which I can't necessarily argue with. But in a controlled um, uh, process through the city's planning, I think there is a means for public input to have uh, an, an impact, and. What I guess I'll, I'll kind of add to that is um, these neighborhood groups are uh, typically well organized, and whether it's a resident group or a business group, um, you know, I, I think there's a there's a means to get engaged and then have a more uh, prominent voice uh, at some of these meetings. Can you describe any examples where you've changed what you've done? So let's not talk um, government as an intervention, but more having their voice be heard by a for-profit real estate developer. Do you have any examples of changes you've made in response to community feedback? Yeah, you know, um, actually 19 The Mercer is a good example where initially we were looking at a single tenant for the ground floor of that building, which would have been potentially 6,500 square feet of, uh, one business and that particular business, uh, wouldn't have necessarily been able to add the same, um, you know, dynamic experience that we've got by creating smaller retail along 19th there, um, with multiple businesses. And I think, um, you know, you look at the, um, the benefit of that and it really came out of, a lot of conversations we were having both in Capitol Hill and the Central District about um, this idea of micro retail. And so uh, what does that mean? Typically it's, you know, anywhere from, uh, I guess, as low as 500 square feet to uh, maybe 1,000 or even sometimes 2,000 square feet. And and the idea being you have smaller restaurants, um, I mentioned uh, Joe's uh, Russell's Tavern, which is Joe Russell's bar. Uh, he's in 800, I'm sorry, 950 square feet. And that intimacy that you get out of that really does, uh, again, you know, kind of encourage that local neighborhood vibe and that feel. It also provides people with um, a chance to enter 
that entrepreneurship that they might not otherwise. Um, you know, you look at South Lake Union, a lot of the the challenge for that neighborhood is the retail spaces are huge. And so um, it's difficult to encourage local retail uh, when you're looking at a, you know, rent on a 5,000 square foot space or more. So how do you balance, you've got these kind of risky local entrepreneurs and you've got the Starbucks, the Subways, uh, the Targets, like these big uh, national chains that you pretty much know are going to pay their rent and will probably pay a lot. How do you balance trying to get those small businesses that help the community versus just getting that sure thing and the, the return on the investment? Or the, yeah. not sure thing, but the less risky yeah. cash flow. Um, you know, I think uh, we're, we're going through in part some of this right now on a building uh, downtown. We had gone through and renovated that structural uh, upgrades for seismic, et cetera. And we've got this really great creative open kind of brick and beam office space on the upper floors. We added a penthouse level, which gave us a sixth floor, uh, which is a real cool just juxtaposition of, you know, kind of the glass box on top of the old brick uh, building. But essentially it's a small project. It's um, six floors in total. And so when you look at the retail, uh, you are one sixth of the overall income projection for that for that project. And so that one we've been pushing really hard for local retail. Um, the challenge is it's harder for us to give concessions or discount that space uh, to a point where we can really encourage a lot of that uh, local interest. And again, it's because it plays such a large ratio of the, the overall income projection for the building. So um, on larger projects, that is the benefit where, uh, you know, you've got more space above the retail. You can essentially amortize uh, lower rent and or um, higher tenant improvement dollars, basically funding the, the retailer's build-out of their space. And so as Seattle's undergoing a rapid transformation, and you're right in the thick of it, what do you hope or what do you believe will be the legacy of Lake Union Partners? Great question. Um, you know, we uh, pride ourselves on being authentic, and it's an easy word to say. It's a hard word to be, I think, um, especially in a, in a world where, you know, investment cycles today are, are much faster than they used to be, um, and so lots of capital flowing to different opportunities. But for us... You know, you'd asked about our values, and I'd mentioned the street level. I think beyond just the street level, we want to do good work, and we want to be proud of what we're doing in this city, and, and we're working in Portland. I mentioned um, Denver. We also have a project in Salt Lake City. We want to treat each of those um, cities and neighborhoods when, in which we work in the same, and, and we want to be, um, you know, thought of as a, as a developer who is hopefully complementing uh, the built environment instead of um, maybe taking away from or stripping uh, identity from uh, neighborhoods and, and cities. And I think, frankly, it's it's harder to do. You've got to spend more time uh, asking uh, difficult questions and trying to think up creative solutions uh, to both differentiate your project, but then also, as we talked about, hopefully... Um, 
uh, hit the priorities of a, of a given community. Thank you very much for your time and sharing your perspective. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. I love to hear the variety of perspectives. Next week on Seattle Growth Podcast, the battle for Seattle. You will hear from three people who have organized, lobbied, or litigated to play a role in determining what Seattle will look like for years to come. You will hear from Roger Valdez of Smart Growth Seattle. People are out there every day trying to make a living building housing. Builders and developers are standing in line at the coffee shop with you. They're riding their bikes in the bike lane next to you. They're sitting in traffic with you. Um, They just happen to be the guys that build the place you live or work. You will hear from architect Martin Kaplan. First of all, it proves that, that one person can make a difference, which I think is pretty important. You'll hear more from last week's guest, Ethan Phelps Goodman. I think Seattle um, you know, is grappling with these questions of change now, but I remember it was grappling with these questions of change in 2003. Through these examples, you'll have a better understanding of how you can have your voice heard as the city changes around you. Through meeting these three changemakers, you'll also get perspective on the variety of efforts underway to set policy. Please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes so you don't miss this or any other episode. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the third season of Seattle Growth Podcast.